Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 140, and today's guest is Lucy DeLand, partner at Inspired Capital. Lucy was a student at Harvard during the same time frame when Mark Zuckerberg was starting Facebook. As we discuss in this podcast, Facebook was a key catalyst to ignite the entrepreneurial spirit at this institution. She went on to be a co-founder and COO of Paperless Post, which included two other Harvard alumni. The company disrupted the online invitation industry by making the process a lot more elegant and personalized with a design-led philosophy, which was very unique at that point in time. Lucy is now a partner at Inspired Capital, an early-stage investment firm that was recently launched by Alexa Von Tobel. Alexa is best known as the founder and CEO of LearnVest, a company that was acquired by Northwestern Mutual. And yes, it was at Harvard where Lucy originally met Alexa. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like what it was like attending Harvard during the creation of Facebook and its impact on entrepreneurship there, the full background story on paperless Post and the many challenges they had to overcome, the details on Inspired Capital and what they are targeting for investments, what pitfalls to avoid when scaling, when you should hire a COO to join your company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a BizPage subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our target audience of professionals in the tech industry. A BizPage subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to infoadventurefiz.com for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Lucy. Lucy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited to talk to you to learn a lot about the whole journey of Paperless Post and, of course, what you're up to now at Inspired Capital. But uh, I always like to rewind the clock just to hear the foundational years of, of, of a person's personal journey. So mm-hmm. you know, where did you grow up? You know, what were you like as a kid? Um, so I grew up in Baltimore uh, and uh, went to an all-girls school down there. Um, I, a lot of people joke that I'm exactly the same. I don't know if that means that I was like a 36-year-old, eight-year-old, or <laughs> that I'm an eight-year-old, 36-year-old. Um, but uh, I was a pretty serious kid, and um, but you know, friendly, kind of had that uh, competitive bent from an early age. Um, but ha- luckily, since I did go to all-girls school, you know, I think that there's this sort of um, we're, we're living through this amazing time of sort of a female empowerment moment. And to me, that's been my whole life. And so I'm just happy that everyone else is catching up because it's that uh, that's not uncommon to me. It's not a revelation. Uh, it's, it's sort of been a, a framework for um, my existence. So I'm, uh, I, I feel very comfortable in the, the 2019 sort of era, and um, and you're you're seeing the eight-year-old version just uh, just today, just a little bit taller. Unfortunately, not a lot taller. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it is you know about time, and I have two little girls that are 15 and 13, so uh, so mm. definitely trying to instill that strong mentality go for it type of approach yeah just big expectations from yourself um and and the expectation that the world is going to come along with you yep thousand percent now so you did end up going to college at harvard so so what did you study there and what was your experience like at harvard um i studied psychology undergrad um and i was just i've always been fascinated with um sort of how humans work and why we 
why we do the things we do. We all consider ourselves sort of these special snowflakes, but it's kind of amazing uh, that we're actually quite predictable and we haven't changed over thousands of years. Um, and ended up studying actually abnormal psychology. Uh, so anxiety, depression, and worked in the suicide lab at Harvard, which um, is not a topic of conversation that really uh, comes up that often. Or, you know, when people ask about someone's thesis and they're like, oh, I studied, you know, the French Revolution. And I'm like, oh, I studied self-harm. Um, it can be uh, a strange jumping off point, but I think it, it has been interesting uh, as like sort of the, the revolution of the uh, sort of like the wellness movement um, to have that sort of to be steeped in that sort of understanding of the world and the importance of mental health and uh, and what all of those terms mean. Um, so that education has actually, I feel like, come back around in the last five years um, with so much of that being sort of forefront and uh, front and center to so much of what is going on in consumer life right now. While we're thinking about sort of how do these screens interact with our, um, you know, how we uh, how we operate and um, what's important to us and uh, the themes in the media in terms of just like how we take care of ourselves as humans. All right. I hope I don't go down a foxhole here, but uh, it's just like, yeah, the screens are definitely something that scares me having a 13 and 15 year old. And, you know, yeah. it's, um, you know, the, the whole measurement of your, you know, worth based on likes and that whole psyche. It's just, it's, it, it does yeah. make me sad that, um, you know, hopefully my wife and I are doing a good job to instill different values to our girls, but mm -hmm. I just see it from more of a, a macro level that, um, you know, it's, it's a challenge for the generation. And I'm, I'm sure it's amazing to you how, uh, how native all of it feels to them, how they can't imagine uh, life without the, a computer in their pocket. Um, whereas, the, you know, even two generations ago, you had to work a lot harder uh, to get in front of a screen. Yeah. Um, and it comes with an, an, uh, an amazing bounty of upsides as well, which I think is always important to recognize how much technology has brought to us. Um, but it, it is, uh, it is a little bit scary. And one quick side story before I totally get off track, but, uh, <laughs> I was driving through my neighborhood and I saw a child who had built a ramp and was riding his bike and jumping. And I'm like, that's exactly what I did as a kid. And I would just do that every day. Just ride <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, thank, thank God. There's still, you know, kids that just, you know, you should just be out there playing and making a ramp and yeah. doing it. So anyways, now you were learning, <laughs> learning firsthand about gravity. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. And hurt yourself. It's good for you. Yeah. So, so uh, but you were at Harvard during the, the years where, you know, these are just random facts that I pick up through my travels mm -hmm. that. It was the same years as Mark Zuckerberg's, like, mm -hmm. started Facebook. So what was that yep. like? Um, so, yeah, Zuckerberg uh, was in my class, um, obviously didn't graduate with us. And we really, so I think it had two major effects. Um, one was that there's something that everyone refers to as the Zuckerberg effect. So my class, the classes around us, ended up being incredibly entrepreneurial and really interested in this because uh, we just saw what it meant to create a company and a service that changed the world. Um, and two, it's amazing to think back and uh, to have watched how the introduction of Facebook between my freshman and my, and my sophomore year, and then junior, senior, as it was spreading to other schools and then eventually into high schools, changed how people interacted on campus. And I remember distinctly the first time I walked to class with my roommate and everyone was wishing her happy birthday. 
And it was the first fall that Facebook existed until October. Her birthday is in a couple of days from now. It's not today. Um, and, and I was like, Allie, how does everyone know it's your birthday? And she was like, Facebook. <laughs> and it was, you know, I think it had been around maybe for six months at that point. Um, and that was just, that didn't, that concept of everyone waking up in the morning, checking something and seeing a, no a notification that it was a friend's birthday didn't exist. Uh, a year earlier, and now, you know, everyone would joke that, you know, we had 10, 15 years of people just writing happy birthday on your wall, and that's what you expected on a birthday, but um, watching that adoption curve and living through it and watching, you know, my, my younger sisters who were at other schools or, and in high school waiting with bated breath for Facebook to show up, and now to have it be this behemoth uh, sort of in our daily lives and in our global world. Um, it is, is wild to have been there from sort of like, you know, among the handful of first users. So with that extension of it became, you know, very an entrepreneurial type of, and you know, Harvard now and HBS are known as, you know, places where entrepreneurship does happen for a while is just management consulting and investment oh, yeah. banking, but it's totally changed. Now, so that's where you met uh, well, two Alexas, right? <laughs> yes, I met the very seminal Alexas of my life. <laughs> Um, uh, so one, one of my great friends, uh, and her brother, uh, were my co-founders at Paperless Post, um, he really came up with it his, uh, junior year, um, of school. So the first year of Paperless Post, James Hirschfeld was still at Harvard, um, and he started a company. Uh, and so I think Paperless he was Post a couple was years behind at Harvard. Us. Yes, it was started at Harvard. Another company that I hear about, like it was started at Harvard. Unbelievable. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Did uh, he try to raise money in, in, in Boston and failed? Um, well, so his sister, Alexa, and myself were in New York, um, and the three of us were working on it together. And so we raised capital, um, and he came and joined us once he graduated. Uh, so we were just sort of three compatriots at first. He um, uh, eventually stepped into the CEO seat. Um, but at the beginning, we were just, it was, you know, basically uh, the three of us on really bad video calls for the first year. Okay, but I, I do want to go deep on paperless posts. So, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a stop before that where you, you know, worked at Insight Venture Partners, which is a mm -hmm. great foundational experience. Like from what I've gathered, it's very mm -hmm. hard work. It is. It's a great uh, introduction to... I mean, even just as a first job, if you don't end up in venture, because you talk to as many management teams and CEOs as possible, and you dive as deep as possible into as many business models as you can. So you don't just learn really deeply uh, one business model, but you really understand the nuances because you get to compare across a ton. And I was there there. Uh, 2006 to 2008. So I was looking at the the business models of that existed back then, um, which are not as numerous even as today. And it was really, uh, you know, as SaaS was coming up, and we were all getting really excited about what recurring revenue could mean to a business, um, uh, what advertising really should look like on the internet, um, and uh, e-commerce and and how it could change consumer habits. Um, really intensely, but it was, it, those were all still really, uh, really early in their life cycle while I was there. And like, were you also like, you know, from what I've gathered, it's, you know, cold calling CEOs and talking to yeah. them about their business. 
Um, so you are reaching out to, you know, like I was saying, as many CEOs uh, as you can each week um, to learn about what is going on with their business, what their idea is. It's a growth stage fund. Right. Uh, so you are trying to call into established companies that are growing quickly, um, but that may not be directly on everyone's radar, um, particularly back then. That was the thesis. And um, so you're also trying to, you're trying to discover a lot of information about companies with that don't have a lot of information out there. Uh, so you're not necessarily calling in knowing that this is an interesting company. You've got to kind of draw that out of the CEO. And, you know, and for me, a big part of the education was uh, learning to get over myself and just ask, even if I felt like I shouldn't be calling up this important person or I shouldn't be asking for all of their most proprietary information. And, um, and so trying to sort of, create in my mind how, how I could be reciprocally helpful to, to people who were willing to get on the phone with me to talk. Um, how was uh, a big sort of, it was a big training ground there and just getting comfortable with yourself um, at 22 years old, trying to figure out how do I, how do I make this a meaningful 15 minutes uh, for this founder that's willing to get on the phone with me? Yeah, such great foundational experience because it, it takes guts, mm -hmm. you know, and to make that call and make that a meaningful conversation. And then, like you said, just, mm -hmm asking questions and what worst case they could say, no, I'm not going to share that with you. Yeah. Which they do a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and also learning that that does not kill you. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, all right. So then what was next? Um, so from there, I really was uh, interested in having an operating background. Um, I found all the management teams I was talking to and working with really compelling. Um, I, learned there that I found growth incredibly exciting and I wanted to have the experience of really willing uh, a company into existence and uh, and whether that and obviously at that point I did not know I would have the great fortune of having uh, a product and company that consumers would love it was there was a huge amount of risk in that there this would be just an exercise in learning how to fail um, which I think is also important uh, but it was 2008, um, the world was falling apart. Uh, I had a boyfriend and a dog, so I had the great, you know, sort of uh, how much is there to lose uh, sort of mentality. And uh, James, Lex and I, um, I, I joined them in their childhood living room um, to see if we could get the service off the ground. And yeah, in New York, you can't start companies out of a garage because if you have a garage, you are really successful. Um, <laughs> so co-working co wasn't prevalent as much. Exactly. Co-working didn't exist. There was actually something called, I think it was Sunshine Desks or something like that. Um, that was the first, first, first iteration of uh, the co-working space. Um, and we decided it was too expensive. So we went right back to the living room. Um, and... Uh, and we just kind of put on the, those entrepreneurial blinders and said, okay, the world is falling apart. Lehman just collapsed. We're still going to go out and raise the seed round. Um, and somehow we sort of cobbled together that first million dollars uh, to launch the service. We closed it in January of 2009, um, right before Obama uh, took office. And uh, we're really lucky to find uh, some incredible angels that uh, supported us here in New York because there wasn't a very vibrant sort of seed, pre-seed, angel scene in New York yet at that point. And how, how did the idea come to fruition? 
Um, so James, who is uh, a naturally incredibly creative person um, and really talented, was kind of putting together the first party he'd ever really hosted um, as a pseudo adult, you know, a 21 year old college kid and put a lot of energy and effort into it and got to the end and said, how am I going to invite people? I'm either going to use paper, which kind of fits my design aesthetic. And I could put that together because I'm a designer, but I'm not going to put the money time effort in. And how am I, where do I deliver these things at college? And then said, and Evite is just not, I mean, it's embarrassing. Mm -hmm. um, he ultimately did send an Evite, I believe. Um, but he said, I, he kind of mocked up what he wished existed and showed it to Alexa and said, you know, I think if I would use this, there are a lot of women out there who would use this because I'm probably not the target customer or at least, you know, not uh, me on repeat here isn't, but I believe that there is a space for important communication that has high potency, that design is important. And this was back in 2008 when design had not really come onto the landscape in the internet. So when we were raising the seed round, we heard over and over again, um, three things. We heard uh, design is not important, doesn't really have a, have a role in the internet. Um, and we were, we kind of came at that with, you know, design has been important for the entirety of human history. So we think that probably the internet's not gonna buck that trend. Um, two, you've gotta to move to Silicon Valley you've got to go live in San Francisco if you're going to start a company and three, no consumer is ever going to pay for anything on the internet. So unless you're planning on being ad supported, um, which didn't really work with the way that we wanted to build the service because, because we wanted it to be your most important and intimate communications. Um, and luckily those three things, if we look back 10 years later, are clearly not true. Right. <laughs> um, but we were definitely swimming upstream uh, in a number of ways as we went out to launch the service. Um, and, and we also had sort of a sense of recession entrepreneurship. We wanted to launch a service that consumers would pay for themselves because we didn't know whether we were at the bottom of the recession, whether this was just the beginning, mm -hmm. and whether we'd ever be able to raise again. So really thinking about how do we make sure that we're creating something that consumers reflect the value back to us. So how did you get the, the kind of the first version or two of the product built? Um, through a lot of, uh, basically we hired a lot of uh, remote developers around the world. Mm -hmm. um, throughout South America, we, we joked, it wasn't really a joke, it was just true that sort of half of our initial code base was in Spanglish. Um, a lot of cartes um, floating around in there that we eventually eliminated um, in order to get sort of an alpha built. So we had sort of a proof of concept. Um, and then uh, a firm in Boston helped us with the first version of the design tool. We had to rebuild everything uh, when once we raised our seed round um, because the, the scale um, that we wanted to be able to deliver and how many invitations we wanted to be able to uh, go out particularly over our own proprietary email server was actually a really big undertaking and uh, the concept of a graphics engine in the browser was really new back then so we were kind of breaking ground there uh, and it wasn't um, it was a pretty deep technical feat to, to begin with so we kind of had to have the proof of concept first in order to raise enough money to build a real version 
put together uh, a solid team here in New York and kind of go back to the drawing board and, and build what would actually be able to scale as we launched it publicly. And when did you decide you were ready to launch and how did you start to build a mm. consumer awareness and, and growth? So we, we launched the service. Uh, we kind of took a playbook from Facebook. We launched the service at Harvard um, and to recent Harvard alums um, to kind of create that alpha momentum. And so that those who would be receiving it kind of knew what it was and how to interact with it to get, uh, so we did that for our alpha in uh, late in 2008. Um, we shut down the service to rebuild it. Once we got a bunch of feedback from the, those initial users, we probably sent out about 30,000 invitations over a couple of months um, to get that initial feedback, closed it down, and then relaunched it in April 2009 um, to everyone who'd already been on the service. And then everyone who received one had the opportunity to join, but we didn't quite open the doors completely until we felt like we had enough proof uh, that it worked, that people liked it, that people understood the concept. Uh, and then we started to open the doors more widely uh, over the summer of 2009. And that June, we had a piece in the style section of the New York Times, which at that point was not um, covering technology as frequently as they are today. And so uh, it gave us an amazing pop because we were something that looked and felt different than uh, what was normally there, but the New York Times style section was such a product user market fit moment um, that I think we signed up about 10,000 users that day and then their wow. usage of the product really took us um, through the rest of the year. And that's that was the beauty of the product is that, you know, if you use it, you're basically introducing it to your nearest and dearest um, for your birthday party, for your engagement party. For whatever occasion it is that you've decided to um, have on the service. And did you already know that? Like, was that part of your pitch of raising capital initially? Of like, hey, there, you know, now it's like viral coefficient. I'm sure that term wasn't used then, but yeah. it was, you know, like when someone experiences it, they're going to get a very different experience than Evite, and they're going to be like, this is amazing. I'm going to use this for my next party. Yep. And uh, we joked that we talked about it at tier point, not all of the language and uh, like, uh, vocabulary around it existed. So we, we watched some patterns emerge, um, which was our conversion rate went up about 4x on the second invitation that you received. And so we tried to unpack it and we asked a lot of people why and they would say, you know, well, when I saw Lucy use it for the first time, I just thought it was something that she had had custom done mm. or was something I couldn't do. But then, you know, when uh, Ashley used it, then I realized that this was a thing. Mm -hmm and that I could use it. And so we had some different dynamics at play that we needed to sort of, uh, that could help us collapse that sort of viral loop. Right. Um, but we didn't, uh, we didn't have all of the sort of, uh, we didn't have all of the knowledge base. We just knew something was working and we tried to lean into to that conversion rate. And I think we, uh, we Alexa and I, Alexa Hirschfeld and I spoke at uh, one of the first like virality meetups um, in New York, but we went and we were like, well, we came here to learn from you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but I think John Steinberg, who was at BuzzFeed, asked us to talk at the last minute. We were like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Facebook and Twitter, they had their own metrics. You got to follow X number of mm -hmm. friends. Otherwise, you're not going to start using Twitter. You got to follow yeah. so many. And that's why they would, as soon as you sign up, 
follow, you know, celebrities or that. Yeah. Yeah. Interests and bringing it down that channel. So, okay. Now the monetization side, how, how did you figure that out as far as, okay, well, a, are people going to pay for this? B how much? Mm-hmm. We, uh, when we were initially launching the service, we thought it would have more of an Eventbrite model where you would throw a fundraiser or an event that had tickets and that we would facilitate that ticket sale um, and collect a portion of it. And what we quickly realized that was that uh, we were becoming a call center for PayPal and that that wasn't what our users really valued about the product. Mm-hmm. Um, so through a lot of surveys and, uh, what now, what I would now call customer development conversations back then, I just called it talking to customers (laughs) (laughs) doing customer support myself from my personal Gmail, um, was that it was really about the design and it was really about, um, the fact that they could create this and that they could infuse their own creativity into it, um, that that was why they were using the service. And so from there, we just did a lot of uh, surveying around sort of what was the price point we could enter at and uh, how much should we give away. And we played with a lot of those dynamics over the years. Um, But the initial uh, business model was really developed through direct conversation with our earliest adopters. And so what was the the initial pricing and... The initial pricing was, so initially on Paperless Post, you bought stamps to send your invitations and uh, you received 25 stamps for free and you could buy the next, you could buy your first package at $5 and it went up from there and it basically scaled with the size of your event. So we did a lot of surveying to find out um, if like sort of what were the mental models that mapped to how customers valued the product. And the size of the event and, uh, and how much they were spending in the real world was the biggest indicator of what they would be willing to pay on the service. Mm-hmm. And then, so customization and how fancy they were making it and then how many people they were hosting were sort of the, the best thing, the best proxies we had. And we, we would have loved to have introduced sort of subscription models. You know, they're beloved for a reason, they're great for a business, but that is not how hosts think about events. Um, even if they know they're gonna host one in the future, they're actually, it's so important in the, the moment, unless you are an event planner, you are really focused on what am I investing in this event? Um, how am I bringing my you know, husband's birthday party to life? I'll think about my kid's party another time. Uh, and so a subscription service just really has never really worked with the mental model. Now, how about the point where you guys finally figured out, well, there's, we're starting to really ramp up and scale. And um, what were some of the challenges that you experienced, like, you know, operational? Was it hiring? Was it, the, you know, the tech? Like, what, what mm-hmm. were some of the challenges of scaling? Uh, so in that first year, I think uh, we launched, when I say we launched publicly, we sent about 20,000 invitations in April. And then we sent a million that December. Wow. So the growth that we saw that year was really amazing in terms of the user base and also just uh and we also saw that you know people send invitations on mondays and tuesdays and then they respond to them wednesday thursday friday Mm. um so not only were we sending out a quarter of a million invitations a week they were really heavily concentrated at the start of the week so our email servers needed to be really ready our site needed to be really ready uh and the where we where we invested 
every dollar that we raised for the first um, couple of years was all in product and engineering. Mm -hmm. So, and hiring engineers today is really challenging. In 2008 in New York, it was extremely challenging hiring engineers for a very design forward product <laughs> mm -hmm. um, is uh, that kind of hides a lot of its complexity uh, pretty well and intentionally uh, was, was a challenge. Um, so I'd say we, Alexa and I were spending a good amount of our time recruiting uh, for the tech team in the early years. And it, it, because it, I mean, it was a complex product, like things like transaction processing, processing, it, it's easier now than it was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, there was no AWS. You couldn't say like, oh, this is the week right. of holiday parties. We're just going to make sure we've got enough capacity because right. bring up another server on engine yard. So <laughs> a, a relic from the past. I remember, um, I remember well. Was a, you got to plan a couple months in advance. You've got to know exactly what you need and what needs to be on that. So, you know, I, I'm very happy um, about what the you know, founders that we are investing in today, the things they have to worry about and the things that they don't. Um, and uh, that that is kind of a solved problem. Now, how about when things started, you know, becoming more mobile oriented? Because then you go from building this complex product. Now people want to do it on their phones. Like that's a whole nother mm -hmm. technical challenge. Um, and that, that's definitely, uh, that was a big evolution at the company to um, move to a, like a mobile and even like equally mobily minded uh, product and uh design-led operation versus, uh, you know, today companies are mobile first because consumers are mobile first and that makes sense. And also the, uh, the technology is there also to support it in the mobile browser, in the, uh, in the app environments. Um, when we needed to start to even port over the, the paperless post experience into a mobile environment in a robust way, it was still early days there too. Um, so sort of immersive, uh, design first, uh, on a mobile device was an undertaking, both from a user experience perspective and UI, as well as from a technology perspective. Uh, so I think that was, that was another, um, it was both a recruiting as well as a sort of cultural shift, um, that everyone across the market kind of had to, to go through. Uh, from like 2010 onward is like stop playing catch up and start, you know, leaning in and uh, playing offense. And at what point did you start seeing competition, other like design focused, similar services? So we actually had a number of competitors over the years. Uh, we had a competitor named Cocodot, Ping. Um, we still have a competitor named Punchbowl. Uh, and many of them didn't make it. And, you know, I'm sure there are lots of, there, every startup has challenges and difficulties, the biggest and most successful. Um, and what we, when we built Paperless Post, we wanted to build the absolute best invitation product on the market, um, bar none. Uh, and it was great that there's this really big events market around it. Um, a lot of our competitors built products as an entree into being able to tap the $100 billion events market. 
Um, and I think because of that, sometimes their products felt like a means to an end versus the means unto themselves. And I think that is where generally we ended up winning. Um, probably driving ourselves insane being that obsessive. Um, but uh, I think it came through in the way that our product came to life. And I'm assuming you went on to raise more capital. How much, how much did you end up raising mm -hmm. a total? Um, we raised about 50 million over five rounds. Uh, so uh, we raised um, every 18 to 24 months, uh, sort of at the beginning, uh, and then uh, had pretty healthy revenue growth uh, alongside that and a very small marketing budget because the uh, viral aspects that we talked about, but big investments in product and technology throughout the life cycle of the company. And we grew and built out a, a branded marketing team sort of starting in year four. Uh, so in our later rounds of financing, we started to invest on that side of the business as well. But until uh, employee number 41, I, I was the only person who used a spreadsheet who would really have considered themselves on the non-product engineering and all the product managers reported to me. So <laughs> really, we, we barely had anyone in the company who wouldn't have been sort of pegged to the product and technology team. And I think that's an important lesson for, um, you know, for founders where, you know, that you figured out a way to build out a product that, you know, kind of had its own growth engine versus mm -hmm. going out and spending, burning through millions of dollars on AdWords or, you know, social spending uh, just to buy those consumers. Because those channels are ridiculous now. Like they're so unaffordable. And, and I think they also, even if you can achieve a, uh, good CAC on one of the, those channels or many of those channels, you tend to burn through them versus uh, if you can crack a code on at least a good healthy portion of your users coming from an organic source, that tends to grow with you versus become exhausted. And it tends to be a gift that gets better at giving as you go along. So I think it's, it's not just uh, the paid versus organic, it, it's the dynamics of those channels as well. Now this is uh, ten years of your career, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, at what point do you decide that okay, it's time to move on and do something else? That's that's mm -hmm. got to be a tough decision. It was an incredibly tough decision, and it, it was uh, also, you know, the equivalent of leaving a family and a child, and uh, something I was incredibly personally dedicated to, in, in addition to being professionally dedicated. Uh, so it was a long decision process. It was sort of as I was coming up on my decade anniversary, um, I, I realized that I had this sort of overwhelming and couldn't be ignored anymore um, desire to sort of architect and, and write the story of my next decade. And that I had the, the luxury of a really strong management team and a really strong senior leadership team beneath me. Um, at that point, we had hired some someone outside of product and engineering and I had an amazing uh, VP of strategy and VP of customer insights and sort of all of these things, you know, the duct tape together over the initial years um, had robust leadership. And so I had this luxury, luxurious position where I could step from my day to day onto the board into more of a strategic advisor role um, and go out and hopefully make paperless very proud uh, from the outside and remain sort of involved in the story. Well, let's talk about what you're up to now. How did Inspire mm -hmm. Capital all come together? 
So Alexa von Tobel, my the other Alexa, uh, the other Alexa uh, was starting LearnVest in 2008, uh, also affected by the Zuckerberg effect. Um, I had been a classmate at Harvard and um, had dropped out of HBS to start LearnVest. And so she and I really began the entrepreneurship journey side by side as good friends in New York. Um, and that really solidified our sort of bond. And we were one another's sort of what you would call like red phone through that journey, an external colleague, um, you know, talking about everything from how do you like, let's strategize raising your series B, let's uh, talk about managing someone 20 years older than you, let's talk about the first time you have to fire someone, let's talk about the 10th time you have to fire someone, somehow that doesn't get easier. Um, and what's your board dynamic and how are you managing through that situation? We, we had not worked together, but we had worked so closely side by side that um, it was, you know, our careers and our, you know, what was going on in our personal and professional lives was all very blurred. And I think as she was coming to the end of her lockup at Northwestern uh, Mutual, and I was sort of on a, a sort of a long and um, gentle path exiting paperless, we started talking about the prospect of working together. Um, last fall after I left, we really picked up those conversations. And she was thinking about starting uh, a venture firm in New York, inspired by the venture firm she'd stood up within Northwestern Mutual. And um, by our sort of mutual desire to see more and more support and scaffolding in this uh, ecosystem where we built companies, which we had seen, you know, just mature so incredibly over the 10 years. But I think we still recognize that we have a long way to go, that New York can just get better and better as a tech uh, center, and that we wanted to be part of you know, the next chapter, but maybe in different seats. Um, and that also uh, an investor operator was a, a profile that we really believed in, um, particularly in early stage investing. Someone on, who really understands and empathizes with the journey of willing a company into existence. Uh, writing the DNA of how your organization is going to operate, what it means to build a culture, um, both both accidentally and on purpose, and uh, and how to architect those business models. And you know, as you were saying, like, how do you discover um, product market fit? How do you make sure that your business model fits uh, what your customers want? And help people along that journey uh, while they're wearing fifteen hats um, and trying not trying to pretend it's not really hard. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, over sort of Q1 as she was standing it up, um, I started working with them sort of on the side to, to help out and then joined as a partner in March. Um, and it's been off to the races since then. And we are, uh, we've started investing and we're really focused on seed and series A investments. Um, we invest across the country, but we're headquartered here in New York. Um, and obviously it has a, a big special part of our heart and strategy. So now that you're, you know, back into the investment side of things, what, mm -hmm. um, you know, like, what's the best way to get on your radar? And, um, you know, what do you expect out of that first meeting? Mm -hmm. um, so we are good at answering cold emails. So Lucy at inspiredcapital.com. Um, and uh, I think, you know, someone who can succinctly describe uh, what they're trying to do 
in a short cold email is already off to a good start because you know it's a cliche that you need your elevator pitch but just that clarity in your own mind of what problem you're tackling and, and why you're the right person to do it uh, I would you know in my first meetings I really want to get to know what is driving the founder to uh, what's compelling them to get up every morning to solve this problem why this instead of another problem uh, I'm generally incredibly impressed with all the founders we're meeting you're taking on one of the hardest jobs in the world um, that's very rarely the problem making sure that you're tackling the right one for your personality for your passion base for you know uh, that this is really something that is deeply ingrained in you because it's a long and hard journey so you've got to know what you're getting into um, and sort of making sure we've got that. You know, I find that a lot of founders put their, their team at the end of the deck, um, but I think in a lot of cases, it, it should be the beginning of the conversation. Um, I think, Which you know, the same way you right? started. You know, every yeah. VC pitch, like, what do you look for? Team first, <laughs> team first. first, put your team first yeah. in the side deck. Mm -hmm. And because that's the, that's how this gets done. You know, this is a very human enterprise. As much as uh, we're trying to build and invest in scalable, technology-driven uh, businesses, they're really always people first, um, no matter what the business is. Uh, and so I, th I would say first meeting, definitely come to introduce yourself first then your business, then why you and your business, you know, should be getting married. And then uh, we look for, um, we look for big compelling markets that also present a lot of opportunity for adjacencies and movement. You know, I think when you're investing in people and you're investing in the early stages, you know that uh, there's still a lot of unknowns out there. Um, and what you're not looking for is a very small, discrete um, problem. You're looking for a small, discrete initial solution, but with a lot of ground to play and with a smart person sitting there saying, you know, I'm going to go down the dark alleys, figure out what else is there and be able to make smart decisions along the way and have a big play, like a big playground, uh, a big white open space um, where I could take this in a lot of directions. So it, it is, it's kind of an impossible thing to ask. You have to ask the founder to come in, be the right person with a huge problem, um, who's focused, but knows how to do a lot of things at once. So, it, I mean, entrepreneurship in so many ways is, um, uh, is, you know, the definition of insanity, like uh, holding two opposing ideas at the exact same time. You need to think big and do small things, you know, but execute on the small stuff really, really well. You need to be detail-oriented and a dreamer. Um, and so I think it's, it's really about, it, it's also about showing that within a team. Do you, are you bringing uh, folks around you or are the co-founders really figuring out which lane they're going to operate in um, to make this as successful as possible and navigate through all of those uh, different inflection points at a company? some which are incredibly execution focused, some which are really sales and big dreaming and visionary focused. Are there particular areas or industries that you're focused on that you're going to gravitate towards? 
Um, we are definitely looking for companies that have uh, a really strong um, full stack technology or really strong underlying technology. Uh, and we were saying, you know, founder market fit and massive market opportunities. And the trends that we're looking at are around, uh, there are a couple, I'll, I'll touch on a couple. They're not exclusive to this, um, but we think a lot about how sort of what is transforming about uh, sort of life in 2019, 2020, the way that we live, earn, work and play. Um, so, you know, we think, uh, we think we're at the beginning of this transformation of what it means to be an employee or an employer um, and what work looks like over the next 10 years. Um, we think we've been through chapter one of the gig economy and that there is uh, a very strong and robust chapter two and what it looks like is still being defined, but uh, you know, we think that there's exciting opportunities around sort of how do you create um, a business in a box, a viable set of opportunities where you're not handing off tasks one at a time to a captive workforce, but you're really creating the opportunity for uh, small business owners um, to really create a productive livelihood um, across a bunch of sectors. Um, we are looking at um, a lot in the consumer space around bringing services and goods at more accessible prices or more efficient delivery mechanisms. Um, and that could be everything from education to uh, a hard good, um, but most likely is something that is really disrupted by an underlying technology layer versus, um, versus just a new brand entering the space. Um, and then uh, my, both of my partners have strong backgrounds in FinTech and InsurTech and uh, the way we um, protect our wealth and grow and protect our wealth and how we also think about sort of this new, we're gonna have uh, a really robust um, set of boomers and uh, retirees over the next 20 years who are also much more digitally native than um, generations before that I think deserve to have a lot of services that have not necessarily been uh, available in the past that are more efficient, um, more cost effective and more effective um, when technology is a big part of them. So once a, an entrepreneur hits product market fit and they start to you know, see that, wow, I need to really start to scale my company. Mm -hmm. what, what advice would you give to founders of you know, pitfalls to avoid, maybe things that you saw at Paperless or you've seen from colleagues that are entrepreneurs or just you know, things that you've witnessed in general? Um, I, think, uh, I think that there's um, a strong desire to micromanage your product market fit. You know, find that group within, within it that has the highest LTV, that is the most obsessed um, and that uh, if you could build your whole entire business on them, God, it would just be phenomenally profitable and they just tell you the nicest things about yourself. Um, and, and often that's, that is a group that, will, that you wanna cater to, that you wanna pay a lot of attention to, but not to the exclusion of uh, the middle that are very happy, pretty happy, could be happier, may never spend as much, but could make up a gigantic portion of your user base. And if you don't listen really carefully to them, often the things that they're asking for will still make your obsessive users happy, but they'll be a little tougher on you. They will not be as generous with the compliments, um, and they won't be as gener generous 
necessarily with uh, the LTV and the profit that you maybe you get on the first purchase. Um, but making them happy is probably what will make your business stronger in the long term. Um, maybe with a few more scars uh, and you know a little less of an ego boost. Um, and so I think making sure that you are, you know, it's sort of the same as um, ensuring that you're not paying attention to vanity metrics. Um, making sure that you're not paying attention to your vanity segment as you're getting into that product market fit. So you ended up, you know, at Paperless Post, you're the COO, right? That's you know, mm -hmm. that you held for, for a good amount of time. What, as a, a company starting to build out their executive leadership team, at what point should a COO come on board? Um, I think that uh, the COO role is in so many ways, uh, whatever the company needs. Um, and, and I've had, uh, you know, I've had many conversations with other COOs and we all joke that we have, you know, that it is the most sort of fungible uh, title. And therefore it's also really hard to say that it's necessary at any point. You know, if you're building out a robust uh, technology company, you need a CTO. If you're building out a um, CapEx intensive business, you should probably get a CFO early on. Um, and there are like mandates based on those things. I think a COO is, uh, is best brought on when you have someone who can really complement uh, the CEO and particularly with a CEO who has a really defined swim lane and who wants to hand off uh, big important portions of uh, the strategic leadership. Um, so it's, it, there, isn't as, um, there isn't as easy of like a rule of thumb, um, but I think the most important thing to hire into a COO role and the best way to use it is to find a person who is flexible, who has, who has probably more leadership skills than hard skills, meaning that it's not about what they do well, it's about how they can get other people to do things well, and who has, and in that vein, has a lot of humility around, I'm willing to, you know, a lot of my job was to help build new teams uh, at Paperless. So I built out our data practice. I was definitely the worst person, uh, and by design, from a data perspective on that team, leading that team, and eventually I handed it off to our technology, uh, to our CTO, and they became part of the technology department, but building that department was kind of in my uh, wheelhouse and trying to find what we needed and how we needed it and to partner really closely with HR to make that happen and figure out how they fit and worked with the rest of the organization. Um, but I think that there has to be, uh, you want someone in that role who knows how to go through the cycles of first, you know, I was reading something the other day, like, and I think it was in one of Bezos's letters one year. Um, you know, if you have someone who decides they want to learn how to do a handstand and they don't do it on the first try, so they decide they're never going to do a handstand again, instead of realizing that you've got to do it really badly, like a thousand times mm -hmm. to get really good at it. Um, and it's easier when you break it down into like a physical because we're all used to being good at doing things. Mm -hmm. But I think organizations and people, and so I think when you bring someone into sort of one of those more amorphous roles, you want someone who's comfortable doing something, knowing that the first time you do something is gonna be the worst and uh, being able to help build out your organization and, and build the muscles that you need and know that the first time you do it, ideally, is the time that will you'll get the lowest grade.
Second time you do it, it'll be better. Third time you do it, because um, the COO should really be leading through those organizational transformations, you know, sort of how are we constantly evolving how we're doing our goal setting? How are we constantly evolving how everyone across the organization is working together? You know, what our standards are, how we operate as an organization, how we get more productive over time. Um, so you also want someone who's not very satisfied ever with the status quo. Got it. So are there any um, books or podcasts that you would recommend other than the Venture Viz podcast, of course, but uh, any, of course. Books, any <laughs> books or podcasts that you recommend? And they don't have to be business. They can be, of course, but uh, anything. Um, uh, so I think um, in that vein, it's an oldie but a goodie. I go back to good to great all the time. Um, and I'm kind of, uh, I'm not a serial monogamist on podcasts. I actually am a listen to many episodes uh, across a lot of them. So I can't, uh, I'm not as good at recommending sort of one to stay loyal to. Um, the most recent book I read that I felt um, was a, at least a perspective changer not a, um, it's not a business book, um, but uh, Educated is a memoir. Um, and I think for everyone really steeped in the technology space and the venture world, um, just remembering, it, it's a very good reminder of like, like access to information and education, mm. uh, how it changes your perspective and ensuring, and also encouraged me to sort of go outside of just the venture space um, as a place to learn versus sort of like cycling in on my own set of beliefs and listening to a bunch of people who think about the world and see the world from the same perspective that I do. Yeah, very true, very true. Yeah. So what do you like to do outside of work for fun? Um, I have a two-year-old. Um, I like to chase her around on her scooter. Uh, well, she likes to, that's her favorite activity, so it is my new hobby. Um, and uh, I think, you know, my husband and I are just uh, kind of reveling in sort of the young child thing. So we're spending a lot of time outdoors in New York, kind of dreading, uh, dreading the winter other than potentially getting her on skis this winter. So mm. we try and spend a lot of time outside of our uh, many hours spent in an office, mm -hmm. outdoors, uh, being active, um, and to the best of our ability, staying away from the screens, but not as successful on that front. Yeah, well, it is a uh, constantly connected world, but it is good to uh, put it away and just kind of mm -hmm. happens, happens, and it'll get attended to when you get there. <laughs> yeah, it will still be there when you get back to it. Well, Lucy, thanks so much for taking the time for walking us through your background, mm -hmm. all the details on paperless posts, which I was excited to hear the details on that. And then, of course, what you're up to at Inspired Capital. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and it was wonderful to sort of go down memory lane. So thanks for uh, letting me talk your ear off. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.